Welcome to Wind Up Weekly. I'm Matthew Gorn. And I'm Katie Canfield. And we're here to share the week's news and wine. This week on Wind Up Weekly. Outstanding results for Concha y Toro in the second quarter of 2020. In contrast, LVMH figures fall 28% and Campari 11.3%. Champagne yet to set yields for 2020 harvest. Emus banned from Australian pub. And as ever, our wine of the week. So before we get to the news, we're going to go over our week in wine. And what were you up to, Matthew? Well, I had some fun teaching some lawyers about Cabernet Sauvignon in a virtual uh, wine tasting. And um, it's really um, fun to kind of connect with all these different uh, people with different experiences of wine knowledge, some of them quite young, some of them older, some of them veterans in wine tasting and wine drinking, others just still figuring things out. And um, it was um, a group of lawyers recommended to me by a student of mine who I learned is called The Assassin. And I think that's a golfing reference. And so I became known as The Assassin's Guy, which I quite liked. Something for your social media handle, perhaps. So what Cabernets did you choose for the lineup? Well, we had three. It was a compare and contrast kind of tasting. Uh, we had um, a wine from Bordeaux, Pessac Lyonien, so classic. And that was interesting because when I opened it, it was a bit closed and I was a bit disappointed. And then an hour later, it was actually quite interesting. And then 24 hours later, it was absolutely delicious. So a very good example of how Bordeaux opens up over time. And that was Chateau Brown, a very French name. And then from Australia, Western Australia, Margaret River, had Leuven Estate, their Prelude series, Cabernet Sauvignon, which is $20. Very good introduction and very good value. And then from here in Napa, Paradigm, which is a very classic um, Napa Valley producer. Oh, one of my favourites. I got to drink the dregs of these wines, so I felt quite fortunate. So good news all around. And as for me, I hosted a sustainability webinar with Amarum Cork, uh, which featured the marketing and communications director, Carlos de Jesus, uh, to talk about cork uh, as the sustainable solution. And we had Virginie Boone from Wine Enthusiast to moderate, as well as uh, two vintners, Carlo Mendavi from Rain Winery, and then Steve Mathiason of Mathiason Wines. So... Big topic, obviously, and not a ton of time to talk about it, just one hour. Hopefully we're we're looking at some future uh, webinars to get further into these details because everyone seems to be doing some really innovative things. Steve and Carlo brought in some interesting things that they're doing in the vineyard and in the winery. And then Carlos obviously was able to talk a lot about cork and the role that it plays as a sustainable, you know, product and it's carbon retention. I've had the good fortune to meet Carlos de Jesus, one of the best names ever, um, over in Portugal. He's an authority. Ask him a question. He has an answer for sure. But he's very passionate about cork, and he talks very eloquently and articulately about it. And I think cork is one of those subjects that when it comes up, people get, kind of get turned off. It's not that interesting. But then after two minutes, people are like, oh, I have questions, because it is a fascinating topic. Yeah, and it was great to get an overview of the product, but then also what Amarum is doing to really reduce their carbon footprint overall as a company and what other companies, wine businesses can do to do that. That's right, because the sustainability conversation is a holistic one. So it's not just one producer or one business can do something that will change the world. It's about everyone doing something. And now on with the news. (laughs) 
Major Chile producer Concha Utoro released sales figures for the second quarter of 2020, with a growth of 16.5%. Furthermore, operating profit increased by 71% and operating margin by 17.5%. In all, net income increased by 52%. These figures were due to a combination of an increased volume in sales, a favorable exchange rate, and the lower cost of wine. The positive results were also attributed by the company to a long and successful strategy of diversification in terms of markets and products. The UK, Brazil, Scandinavia, and Mexico were particularly successful, while China and Caribbean saw some decline. Well, it's good to know that some people are making money out of this uh, pandemic. Isn't it just... Well, in contrast to the figures announced by Concha Itoro, LVMH, which is much more luxury-focused, saw sales down by 28% in the first six months of 2020. However, these figures aren't solely wine-related, and in fact, the wine and spirits results are more positive than other luxury divisions of the global giant. Wine and spirits fell by 23% in this period, while jewelry and watches fell by 40%. So people are still drinking wine, it seems. Not surprisingly, the second quarter of 2020 was worse than the first, with champagne sales particularly affected. However, Hennessy Cognac remained resilient, in part as sales rebounded in China. We're going to discuss champagne in a little more detail in the next section, but it's clear that um, champagne sales are suffering. But um, it's interesting that cognac is remaining resilient and that China is rebounding. So all these markets are kind of going up and down, which makes it very unpredictable. But if things can settle, and that's a very big if, then we expect sales of all these products to go back up, which leads us to Campari. Yes, Campari also announced its figures for the first six months of 2020. Given that its top export market is the USA and the company relies on on on-premise sales, it was no surprise to see a fall of 11.3% in sales. Net profit declined by 33.5% and gross margins by 17%. However, when the results were announced this week, Campari's share price rose by 4%. The negative effect of the pandemic is expected to lessen over the course of the year, and the company believes their ongoing process of consolidation in various markets will continue to be successful. So I think a theme here is that companies which have a diverse portfolio and a global one will maintain that success so they can buffer the hits that they receive in some markets and by um, getting profits in other markets. So these big global companies will somehow uh, plough through to small ones which have very focused markets which may struggle. Well, and also not putting all your eggs in the luxury market basket. I think it's important that, you know, you're also looking at the sort of entry level kind of mid-tier because that's where it seems that sales are really rising. Especially as all these sales are are off-premise sales. So you go into the local grocery store, supermarket, buying some wine, hence the success of Chile. Whereas uh, champagne is going to be more restaurant-based or more independent um, store-based. And so that's an area which is going to struggle, for the time being at least. By this time of the year in Champagne, the allowed yields for the harvest would usually have been set. These are legally binding yields which protect quality and the region's place in the market. But this year there has been no agreement on the yields yet. The Committee Champagne met on the 22nd of July, yet made no announcement, which is of concern as the harvest is projected to begin in August, for the sixth time this century. 
As ever in Champagne, the failure to reach an agreement is due to conflict between the growers and the major producers. The big brands who make wine and sell it across the world want yields to be set at about 60 to 70 hectolitres per hectare, about half of what this harvest is expected to produce. They're understandably concerned that the effect of COVID-19 will be to reduce international demand, and that there'll be more champagne on the market than consumers are willing to buy. This comes on top of a slow decline in production over the last few years, from 315 million bottles in 2018 to 300 million in 2019, in which 297.5 million bottles were sold. Growers, however, want yields to be set at about 100 hectolitres per hectare. As they, on average, receive €6 Euros per kilogram, it's not surprising they want higher yields. Collectively, the region is, set, is sitting on four years of stock, equating to 1.2 billion bottles, and sales were down 32% for the first six months of 2020 compared to 2019. If production in 2020 matches the current decline in sales, only 200 million bottles would be produced. In comparison, in 2009, after the last great financial crisis, 293 million bottles were produced. So these seem like drastic times for champagne. So it's interesting you point out that this is the sixth time this century that harvest has begun or will begin in August. Um, Just, I guess, another nod to climate change, because normally it is September for champagne. And as far as yields go, uh, you know, as the pod reported last week about Prosecco, uh, they're looking to really reduce yields and in search for quality. So we would hope champagne would do the same. Yeah, it's interesting that Prosecco have um, already agreed to reduce their yields, though their yields are still going to be pretty high, as we reported last week. But I think in Champagne, there's been a very long conflict between producers and growers. It goes back to the 19th century, where there, there are different demands. The growers want to have as high yields as possible. The producers want much lower yields. And that's been kind of imbalanced in recent years. This is the first time in a while that there's been this conflict. But of course, we're at a time of economic crisis where everyone wants to get it not just make as much money as possible, but consolidate their their um, production as well. So there's a big conflict between growers who really want to sell their grapes and producers who know they're not going to be able to sell their wine. One champagne has always sort of been the exception to the rule, right, of quality wine production, saying that, you know, smaller yields means better quality wine, quote unquote. But in champagne, you know, we've seen very high quality wines come from very high yields. So it'll be interesting to see what the comité decides. And it's not just, it's not quality they're discussing. It's um, just how much wine they can sell. And so the growers want to sell their grapes, but the producers are are wary of actually, if they can actually sell the wine. So you could actually have really high quality wine that they just couldn't sell. Now for my favorite news story of the pod. An amusing one in less than amusing times. Two emus have been banned from a pub in Queensland, Australia, due to bad and antisocial behavior. Chris Gimblett, who co-owns the Yarraka Hotel with his wife Jerry, posted a sign announcing, Emus have been banned from this establishment for bad behavior. Please let yourself in through the emu barrier and then reconnect, please. The two emus are called Carol and Kevin, have trained themselves to climb the steps leading into the pub, and once inside have stolen food from patrons and defecated on the floor. Since the ban, they have been loitering outside hoping to take advantage of customers entering through the emu barrier, but apparently they have so far failed to get back in. Is this the most Australian story you can imagine? 
Well, we always talk about critters when we talk about the Australian wine industry and you know, emus are quite large critters, but I guess it kind of fits the bill. And they're called Carol and Kevin. Again, very Australian. But just um, to give my British take on emus, uh, back in the 70s and 80s, there was a comedian called Rod Hull who had a um, kind of a hand puppet, which was an emu, which would always attack people. So there's actually a very famous interview on a, on a TV chat show where the emu attacks the presenter quite violently and just won't stop. And it's very funny, but it's also very kind of on the edge because the presenter actually gets quite scared that this hand puppet is actually going to really attack him quite violently. And so whether it's a hand puppet or a real emu, they can be a menace. They can indeed. And fun fact, I actually had a a pet emu in my childhood. Uh, I am a farmer's daughter and we had one in our backyard and it was not very nice, I must say. Uh, I was young, so I didn't you know, quite know how to handle the emu, but I did stay, stay far, far away. Very sensible. Um, did it go to the pub on occasions? God knows, could have. And now for our wine of the week, which is, Katie? Domaine Pichat, Champagne's Cote Roti 2012. That's the kind of wine that gets us going, isn't it? Definitely. And why did we open this? Well, this week was Katie's birthday. My birthday! So we dug into our small wine fridge to drink something special. And it had to be special, not just because it was Katie's birthday, and she is entering her Jesus year. 33! But because we ordered a takeout from Single Thread, a three-star Michelin restaurant in Healdsburg. Oh, three stars for 33. Well, that was well thought out, right, Matthew? It's like I'd planned it. And that's a first. We've never ordered from a Michelin-starred restaurant before. And so um, I picked up the meal, brought it back home, and um, it's a very tasty meal. What did we have, Katie? Well, it was a hanger steak, a tomato toast, heirloom tomatoes, of course, and not as big or leisurely as when in the restaurant, because I believe it's a four-hour experience when you actually dine in. But, you know, we enjoyed it in our backyard, and the food was excellent, so can't complain. Yeah, technically it was a, a four-course meal, so it, um, there's a salad... There's a tomato toast, and then there's a steak, and then there's the dessert as well, which mm-hmm. was almond trifle. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, very tasty, and it's fun to have it at home, and we could just do what we wanted, really, and have it with the wine that we wanted to have it with. And so, the wine itself, Katie. So, Domaine Pichat are a small northern Rhone producer who make wine from Cote Roti and Condru. And for a long time, they farmed their two hectares of land without selling the wine commercially, also farming fruit and vegetables. In 2000, at the age of 22, Stéphane Pichat made wine for the first time, selling 900 bottles. And now they own five hectares and sell 20,000 bottles, just under 1,700 cases, which means they are slightly more available than they were at the beginning of the project. They have several different plots in Cote Roti and one in Condru. The wine we had was from the high elevation Champagne and the 2012 vintage, grown on brown schist soils and aged for 24 months in 30 to 40% new oak barrels, less than the 80% Stefan was initially using when he first started making wine. Like most Cote Roti, these are wines generally to be drunk with some age to them. We've been waiting a while to uh, pop this 2012 open. Long while. 
Though it sounds like uh, these wines are a bit more approachable than when he first started to make them with all that new oak. Um, I was doing some reading, and in the early days these wines were quite closed when they were young. But I think they're a bit more approachable now. Because this wine was nearly eight years old, which isn't that old in the terms of Cote Roti, but it was still um, extremely approachable. And it had the perfect balance between a ripe fruitiness, some floral aromas, and a tannic structure balanced by oak and acidity. And this is a wine that can age another ten years at least. Well, and our little wine refrigerator only carries about 18 bottles, so, you know, we can't do super long aging, unfortunately. But this one was a real treat, and the label is amazing as well. Yeah, and I think we bought this wine about four years ago. We went to a tasting at Backroom Wines in Napa. It was a Syrah tasting, I believe, and we loved this wine, even though we knew it was still quite young. We thought we'd buy this, set it to one side, and see how it goes. And we've managed to resist and tasting it or drinking it for the last four years, which I'm quite impressed by. But it's worth it because it was drinking beautifully on Monday night. Really was, and excellently paired with that hanger steak, I have to say. Cheers to that! So that's it for Wind Up Weekly this week. I'm Katie Canfield. I'm Matthew Gone. Join us next week for another Wind Up. And in the meantime, we ask that you please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Uh, That helps other listeners searching for the news in wine to find us. Especially if the reviews are positive. That's right. See you next week. Cheerio!